Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Reading out of Genesis chapter 13, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. The people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Genesis 19, the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Lord, I pray that you would give us an understanding of your word today and its truth and how it applies to us, Lord. Guide us in this conversation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to welcome those of you that are on the ground floor, whole bunches of you. I want to welcome those who are in the balcony, just about packed out up there. Those in the atrium, bless you. Um, those of you in the gallery, just so you know, our screens are having a little problem, so they're, that's why they're off right now. And so these are prime seats just for the future thought. Okay, around here. For those of you on live stream, we welcome you as well. There's still room for you. Um, today, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask that you would not express yourself in this service uh, with an amen or shout or anything else. You don't know who's next to you who may be processing things differently than you. I want to talk to you today with the title, Coming Out of the City. We discussed the idea that earlier there's a theme in this first passage in the 13th chapter. talks about a decision that Abraham made to um, live out in the countryside still uh, in nature, open before God with no insulation at all. And and Lot, his nephew, who moves in tents next to Sodom, eventually we find he actually moves into Sodom. That's a pretty wicked place. And then in Genesis 19, you have um, Sodom and Gomorrah and other cities being destroyed. Literally, fire and brimstone are happening. And so this conversation is to understand what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and why. Uh, This is a sensitive conversation. There are individuals who will struggle over this, and there's many of you, especially young people, who you've been deeply propagandized. And the moment I begin to speak on this subject, you're going to shut down certain parts of your brain because you've been told um, that just even certain words I'll use automatically imply things. Uh, Last few times that we've even come close to discussing things of this nature, we've had people walk out of the service on two different occasions, the last time saying that they didn't come for politics. This is not politics. It has been heavily politicized, but it's not politics. So I would ask, unlike those individuals in those two times, that you would stay for the entire conversation, whether online or present, so that you'd understand uh, the totality 
what we're talking about, and be as respectful as we are striving to be in having this conversation. I'm going to speak to you because as Christians, you've been propagandized and being targeted. I want to speak to family members who have people they care deeply about who struggle with the issue we're talking about um, and are processing what that means for them. And then there are those in this place who themselves struggle with some of the issues we're talking about, some of you who have resolved those and are present with us, some who are present and still struggle. And I want you to understand that, that this is to be a safe place to have this conversation. So, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, before we get into that, let's talk about something that happened just recently that gives some context for our conversation. There was a thing that happened in the whole uh, entertainment world, and I don't track that deeply, but um, it involved Candace Bure, an actress who's an outspoken Christian. I'm not here as an apologist for Candace, just what you see. She made a decision recently to separate, I guess, from Hallmark Channel, and she's with a new startup called Great American Family, I guess. And at one point in time, she was trying to say what the differences were going to be, and she referenced that the differences were that with this new thing she's part of, that they want to focus on stories that have to do with traditional marriage between a man and a woman. That's all she said. Um, She got really blasted pretty heavily for that uh, because it seemed to be excluding or casting shade upon same-sex marriage. Um, One of the actors that is part of the current network she's with quit that network in regards to, in response to hers, a guy named Neil Bledsoe, um, stating that, quote, that he is a Christian and um, he can't stand by while this hateful, discriminatory conversation is taking place. Uh, he was taught to love everyone, and so he, because of his Christian faith, is leaving this and walking away from Candace, evidently. And then at some point in time, Danica McKellar, another actress, I think she was with The Wonder Years or something years back, um, who's been part of this, she weighs in and says, well, I don't think you quite understood what Candace was saying. Um, I don't think she was being discriminatory or hateful. Um, and then she said this, I'd like to set the record straight about something. McKellar said, um, I'm a new Christian, and I'm so grateful for that. And as I always have, I celebrate all forms of healthy love between adults, and I support representation. Uh, my husband and I went to the wedding of one of our close friends, and there was nothing more beautiful than watching him with his husband, him with his husband getting married. Um, the idea that Christianity would judge any form of love simply baffles me. She says, I'm still new to my faith journey, but as far as I can tell, Jesus loves and includes everyone. That's kind of his thing. Now, to be clear, there was no discrimination. It's an ideological discussion. I I don't know for sure, but I would bet pretty strongly the great American family, Candace Bure, all those guys would have no problem hiring anybody LGBT as a producer, an actor, anything else. It wasn't a discrimination. It was a statement of saying, we are going to present this ideological concept of marriage between a man and a woman. And they said, no, you can't do this. So there was this argument. I'm not trying to get into that right now as much as what I want you to understand is there's three Christians with three differing views about the same subject, same-sex attraction, and what that's supposed to be about. So there's confusion going on about this within the church as well as obviously in our society, but within the church itself. Amy Grant, 
Loved her music when I was a kid. Some of you know her, I'm sure, and are familiar with her. Uh, upon learning her niece was lesbian and wanted to get married to her partner, her reaction was, quote, a gift, what a gift to our whole family to just widen the experience of our whole family. Um, honestly, from a faith perspective, I do always say, Jesus, you just narrowed it down to two things, love God, love each other. I mean, hey, Grant says, that's pretty simple. She goes on to say, quote, it doesn't matter how we behave. Okay, so it doesn't matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we're wired. Uh, we're all our best selves when we believe to our core I'm loved. And she goes on to make some other statements that she made eventually to, uh, I think it was People Magazine or so. And so now four different Christians, four different perspectives um, in regards to same-sex attraction and uh, marriage and things of that type. I'm not interested in getting involved with uh, things that are hateful or bigoted. I'm interested in what is true and what is not true. I'm interested in what is best for people and what is not best. I'm interested in what is eternal and has eternal implications to that. Now, there's another person. I'll bring her into the conversation here. Jackie Hill Perry. Jackie Hill Perry um, was in the lesbian lifestyle for some period of time. She was a hip-hop artist. Um, At some point in time, she came out of that. She became a a follower of Christ, and she came out of that lifestyle and uh, is married now. And so not Jackie Hill, but now Jackie Hill slash Perry. And she comments in regards to these things as well, too. And there are individuals that have separated from that lifestyle and speak to that. And and this is something, and I want to play this for you to both understand where we're standing as a church, but also for those of you who have a proper understanding of this even, to have a deeper understanding of what this conversation can mean to some of the people in this room. So Jackie Hill Perry. I think in the LBGTQ community is everything. Honestly, I think they don't get a lot of it. I don't think they understand how much your sexuality becomes who you are. Therefore, even all of your experiences kind of, in a sense, are governed by it. So your friendships, your community, uh, just your your whole lens, in a way, is through sexual identity. And so I think that's why those in the LBGTQ community get so offended. It's not just that it's sin, because, I mean, we are offended by the gospel when someone says that we're in sin and we need to repent. But also, it's like, you are coming against who I am. <laughs> like, you're attacking me, not something I do, but who I am. And so I think when we kind of can understand that thinking, that I think we'll be able to be a lot more gracious in our approach, um, a lot more empathetic even. Um, yeah, I think I, I think even... Christians fail to understand how communal the uh, homosexual community is. Like, to even say you need to come out of this means that I need to remove myself from the place that I feel safe. And so even that, that's terrifying to a person to say, oh, so not only do I have to stop doing what I do, but I have to leave my friends and the people who make me feel happy or whole into a place or community that doesn't seem as safe as this one. 
If you cut that last part, it doesn't seem as safe as this one. She's talking about the church. You know, I have to leave a place where I feel safe and understood to enter into a fellowship or community of people where it doesn't seem as safe. And in many ways, she's right about that. Um, she doesn't stand alone in some of the stances she's taken. There's another name you could look up, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Wesley Hill. There's other individuals who've come to faith in Christ and have made a different decision as to how they view sexuality. But it's the lens, she says, through which they see each other. And as a result of that, you've got oftentimes two reactions that happen in the church, or capital C. You have the one group that basically just is angry and bitter and, and hates people who are not the same as they are, that hates those who are within the LGBT community. They are actively vicious about it and violent, and that is not us. Will not be us. Should not be us. Then you have increasingly large segments of the church that's over here that um, recognizing the pain and the struggle that's part of this, they just affirm not just the pain and the struggle of individuals who are going through or processing their sexuality, but increasing the pressures of society that says if they take a stance other than this, that they will be uh, marked, uh, shredded, attacked. Um, In short, you cannot graciously disagree in our society any longer. You cannot respectfully opt out. Instead, you must deny your convictions if you're a follower of Christ. You have to rewrite the Bible Run roughshod over your faith and publicly celebrate something you believe to be wrong. Otherwise, you're a crass human being and a small-minded bigot. Those are the only choices. So you have those two elements. But there is a third choice, and it's one we've chosen over time to embrace as a church. And that is to find a place of what Scripture is saying about this and what does God say, and stand upon that. This is very easy to hate and exclude and not think too much and discriminate in any fashion. It's very easy just to give in, surrender, and say whatever and we approve. And like Amy Grant's even saying, it's all good. Behavior doesn't matter. Being in this position is hard. It's not only a harder position to hold to, it's a harder position to practice ourselves. The tendency, if we reject this, is to, and especially as we engage with people and we know the humanity of what's involved, is to slide this direction and that we can start to hold this position. But for, I think, good people, we tend to slide this way. There's an old poet named Alexander Pope. You're familiar with a lot of his work, though you may not be aware of it. Some of his stuff is like, to err is human, uh, to forgive divine. Uh, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. A little learning is a dangerous thing. Um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, hope springs eternal in the human breast. Those are all some of Alexander Pope's stuff. Um, but there's another poem he wrote one time that goes like this. Vice is a monster of so frightful mean or nature as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, and then embrace. And so we need to engage, but in that engagement, we need to be clear on what our position or views are. And we need to make sure that our views align with God's view, as Madeleine Langle said one time, and you can put it on the screen. 
I have a point of view. You have a point of view. God has view. So what is God's view on things? What is the position that he stands for on these items? And to that end, I want to take you through a series of things of what's being thrown at the church and what is being argued so that you'll have an understanding yourself. Let's start with the very story that this scripture opened up with, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay. Now the story, the actual biblical story, goes like this. Um, Lot moves alongside of Sodom. At some point in time, he evidently moves into Sodom. He becomes some kind of a figure actually within the city somehow. And uh, at one point in time, God's going to judge Sodom. It's hit the, 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 the horribleness of it, we'll work out what that was later, cries out. And so two angels come down and they're going to walk in. Earlier this, Abraham has negotiated with God. Um, if there's 10 righteous people, you won't do this, right? And God's agreed. And maybe Abraham's doing the numbering in his head. And he's thinking of, of, of Lot, his nephew, and uh, the kids, and maybe their extended family, fiancés, whatever else. And he's got a figure of 10 and said, we don't know that for sure. But either way, these two angels come to pass the judgment. And as they walk in uh, at the city gates, uh, Lot sees them. And, hey, how you doing? We're meeting, we're talking. Hey, what you doing tonight? And they said, well, we were just going to sleep here in the city square. And Lot says, ah, not a good idea. Not a really good idea. It's not a good neighborhood. In fact, the whole city is not a good neighborhood, okay? Why don't you come in and spend the night with me? So they come in and they spend the night with him, which has a certain law of hospitality that takes place. Well, later that night after a meal and a few other things, a bunch of the men of the city, young and old, it says, gather around outside the door. And they start yelling and saying, hey, bring these guys out. We want to get to know them. The implications are totally sexual. We want to have sex with these guys. And um, Lot goes to the door and says, hey, these guys are under my hospitality. Don't do this. And they yell, you judge us? We just let you live here, and now you're going to judge us? Lot does a weird thing. We won't go into this today. There's other stuff about it. But Lot says, look, at, I've got two virgin daughters. Why don't you mess with them? It's, like, it's a weird moment. We don't know whether he was thinking that their fiancés would come and rescue him or if he was just playing off the idea that these guys were attracted to the men and would reject the, the, the girls or that there were some other deeper issues of hospitality. We don't know what fully, and, and there's other aspects we won't get into today. Just acknowledge it's a weird moment. I would say not one of Lot's best. And they reject all that, and they say, bring them out now, and they start to force their entry, at which point the angels bring, this, bring Lot back inside. The men who surround the house are blinded. And um, that ends that conversation. But then they tell Lot, look at the whole city's going to be destroyed. Get whoever you got that's righteous with you, that's your family, and head on out. So he mentions it to his, his extended family, his girl's fiancés, whatever else, they laugh at him. So it ends up being just Lot, his two daughters, and his wife. And they, they run out of the city. And they're told, don't look back. And you guys know some of the story, at least. Lot's wife just kind of regretfully, oh, but I miss, and she turns into a pillar of salt. Whole other conversation there. A city then is destroyed by um, fire and brimstone, it says. In fact, um, this passage here in Genesis 19 is repeated by Jesus in Luke 17 that says, uh, that Sodom was destroyed, and he actually flips it. So in the verse one where it's brimstone fire, he actually says fire and brimstone. And there's, we don't know whether there was an earthquake in that region. There was a lot of uh, 
asphalt underneath and liquid tar that shot up in some way, killed it. We don't know if a comet hit. We don't know. But we do know that the devastation still exists to this day. It's on the edge of the Dead Sea, possibly under the Dead Sea at one point. It's the lowest point on the planet. Something happened. Even secularists and atheists know something devastating happened to that region and continues to be echoed out. So that's the basic story. Um, let's walk through some of the variations. How many of you ever saw the Bible? It was a mini-series. Roma Downey put it out. Her husband, I think Mark Burnett, whatever else. Okay, If you saw it, do me a favor and expunge most of it from your brain. The rest of you don't ever see it, all right? This was put together by Christians. And um, they just added a lot of stuff to whatever. So let's, let's do their version of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels <clears throat> are being chased by a mob when they desperately encounter Lot. And they say, please, save us. Would you please save us? And, and he's like, okay. And he takes them inside the house. These poor beaten up guys, they're cut and bruised and everything else. He takes them inside. And then these guys come for him. And, and it's clearly sexual nature. And, and uh, he says, like, don't do this. And then the angels at one point in time drop their robes and they're in armor. And they change from being beaten. They step outside the door. And then they blind everybody in kind of a really ugly sort of fashion. Okay, whatever. Um, First of all, they clearly, from the story we know, did not seek help. He invited them in. So that's a little off. But it's the next part that really kind of defines the entire miniseries for me. Um, The angels finally, when they're going to take the judgment part and lead them out of the city... They're now in shining army. They have swords. One of them is an Asian guy who has crossed swords. Everyone loves to do that nowadays over the back, you know? And, and at some point he sees the crowd and they're all running at them with weapons and stuff. And so he takes out the crossed swords and then he begins to slice and dice his way all the way through everybody, doing flips and twirls and cuts and, and like, oh, your kung fu's not so good or whatever. He just wipes them all out. It's a ninja angel. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not there. It's just not there. And I'm like, oh, you just lost me totally on this. That was from Christians trying to portray and convey the scripture to you. How about some that have different agendas? There's one more radical aversion or subversion going on. Um, several. First one we'll touch on real quickly is going to be the idea of this. The idea is being purveyed that what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't about same-sex attraction, nor was it about sexual morality. That it was about hospitality. That it was about the fact that they were a highly inhospitable people. Now, um, in fact, they, th- this is actual quote from the person presenting this. It says, uh, rather, the ancient Sodomites were... See, the true sin of the Sodomites is described by has nothing to do with the same-sex acts per se. Rather, the ancient Sodomites were punished by God for far greater sins, radical inhospitality. And what they would draw from is a passage in Ezekiel... Um, there's 20-some passages that reference Sodom and Gomorrah throughout the Old New Testament. And this was one of them. It's the only one that references this. But let's listen to it. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. In other words, they were inhospitable. And so the whole thing was not about these guys wanting to rape these other guys. Or if it was, it was about rape, not about same sex. It was about forced acts, not about the other. But it was mostly inhospitable. They were under Lot's care, and therefore, uh, because of that breaking of that. But the passage goes on in verse 50, and it says, They were haughty and did an abomination before me. The term abomination there is the same term that's used in Leviticus 18. And in this passage in Leviticus 18, 
um, it talks about homosexuality or same-sex being an abomination before God. Um, and then some people will want to say, well, okay, but the whole issue of, of where these are referenced in Leviticus um, are not really useful in any fashion because that's the Old Testament. Uh, we don't keep, and you'll get this thrown at you, you don't keep uh, you know, your dairy with your um, meat and certain fibers of clothing and all this stuff. Well, there were three basic codes in the Old Testament. One was a civil code that was meant strictly for Israel and died with the nation of Israel. The other was a ceremonial code that was linked to temple worship, and that died with the temple. But there was a third code, and it was called the moral code. The Ten Commandments are part of that moral code. The moral code transcends all culture, all time. It does not go away. And it's nothing to do with fibers or meat or fruit or any of that nature. It's a moral code. The Ten Commandments still hold, thou shalt not kill, etc., etc. And what we find in Leviticus is part of that. And where you find the issue of reference of this abomination and where you find the reference to homosexuality mentioned is in Leviticus 18, 21, uh, 22 specifically, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. But here's the thing. That's Old Testament. It's Leviticus. It's some code thing. We throw it out. The passage that comes before it, the very direct one, verse 21, says you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch. In other words, no child sacrifice where you put them on a burning temple and kill them. It says, don't do that. The one after, verse 23 says, you should not lie with an animal. In other words, it's talking about bestiality. So right between bestiality and child sacrifice is homosexuality. If you want to say that's a code that doesn't apply, you have to apply it to what is surrounding it. It makes no sense. Inhospitable they may have been. But there was also pride, and there were also di- other dynamics that were part of the equation. But that's what you'll be told. Another thing you're going to be told that's coming out soon is a movie entitled 1946, The Mistranslation That Shifted Culture. This person is arguing, and it's put out by a self-identified lesbian Christian, Sharon Rocky Raggio, Um, has recently unearthed evidence that challenges deeply held beliefs about LGBT people and their place in God's kingdom. In a statement posted on the site, Rajo, whose father is an unaffirming pastor, says her goal with making the film is to change the Christian narrative and liberate the many LGBT people living in darkness, oppressed by bad theology. And so what she's arguing, and this movie's arguing, is that in 1946, when the Revised Standard Version translation was updated, that the translators introduced the word homosexual in a passage of 1 Corinthians where it really didn't apply, and it was the first time it was injected, and this has shaped the narrative and the hatred and the, the, the problem and the controversy all these years long. Again, it's a completely false statement and narrative and doesn't hold up. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 9-11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, this particular translation says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That line, men who have sex with men, the RSV puts it as homosexual. And so the statement is, well, it doesn't mean either of that. Um, It just means abusive people. 
that abused like a rape again or something of that nature, or it shouldn't be in there at all according to what she's saying here. The words there are actually two separate words. And one word has reference to the active person in a homosexual relationship. The other word has reference to the passive person. If it was rape or if it was a way that, that, that the passive person is being attacked, they wouldn't be included in this. Why judge that person and, and say that they are somehow immoral just because they were raped or forced in some fashion? The language, and as it's been translated in every other element down the line, is clear in what it's saying. It's, it's saying that that is wrong, whether it's passive or active, that it's wrong. But before you get too lazy and laid back on this, you need to realize that it's also saying sexual immoral. Oh, yeah, we know that what that means. Those are adulterers. No, that's said that later, adulterers. So what about sexually immoral? And here's where it gets a little bit warm and cuddly here today, guys. If you're a Christian and you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're not married, then you are sexually immoral. You are part of this passage of Scripture in the same as same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction or not attraction but sex as well or adultery. It's the same category. And it's become quite popular within Christian realms today, the same as it has been to surrender these other issues. I'll say it again. If you're sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend and you're claiming to be a Christian, you're violating the ways of God. It's the same thing. You say, well, wait a minute. We get to love whoever we want. This is against love and stuff like that. That's a whole long conversation we don't have time for today of how we've misused and, and changed the word love in our culture. But let's just put it in a short version. You can love whoever you want to, but you cannot have sex with whoever you want to. And that is not just a biblical issue, incidentally. That's also a legal one that's changed in our society, but it's still part of it. I can love a 12-year-old or 10-year-old child, but I better not have sex with that 10-year-old, 12-year-old child. I can love my mother, but I better not be having sex with my mother. I can love someone from afar or even up close, and I know you and I love you, but you have no interest in me whatsoever, so I force myself upon you and I rape you, but I love you. We have laws against various forms of sexual expression. That equated with love is a misstatement within our society. You can love whoever you want, but the scripture says we can't have sex with whoever we want, and the laws, depending on the situation, sometimes says that as well. So you're going to have this mistranslation that's going into play and the misapplication of how that is. That's something that you can feel through or work through as well. There's another situation, though, beyond the mistranslations and the other attempts like this, and this has to do with Jesus. Ted Lieu is a congressman from California, a very well-accomplished individual. He's currently, I think, a colonel in the National Guard or whatever else. He came over as an immigrant from Taiwan with his parents, is a lawyer. He's a well-accomplished individual and evidently a Christian, according to him, Catholic in his expression. And so at one point in time, recently, he stood before the House of Representatives as a congressman, and he says, I just want to, um, I just want to say what Jesus said in regards to homosexuality. I yield my time, and he stepped back. The point of what he was trying to point out, and he went longer than that, actually, is what he was trying to say with that is Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality. He didn't say anything about same-sex marriage. Jesus loves and accepts anyone. He doesn't speak to this issue, and that's what you'll also be told. And that's kind of true, and it's totally false. Jesus didn't use the word elder abuse either. But at one point in time, he talks about taking stuff that's meant to take care of your elders and dedicating it to the church to bypass 
providing for elders. He didn't talk about a number of other things, but he indirectly at least speaks to some of those issues. And specifically, really, the issue of homosexuality and and same-sex marriage. At one point in time, he's asked about divorce. And Jesus' response in regards to the issue of divorce is this, Matthew 19. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus quotes the Old Testament and repeats it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a sexual statement. That, that sex was for a man and woman within the context of marriage. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever God's joined together, let no one separate. And so clearly, Jesus is affirming the biblical vision of marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. He affirms sexuality within that particular context when he said approvingly, the two shall become one flesh. And he refers to it authoritatively by referencing the Old Testament and that moral code that continues on and is not set aside. He goes even further than this, though. At one point in time, in Matthew chapter 15, he says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery. And then again, he specifies sexual immorality as that separate entity. Theft, false witness, slander. These are what, he says, defiles a person. This is what defiles. The term defile means to be unclean. When... The prodigal son, as was referenced last week, was with pigs. That was particularly brought out to, to reference to the Jewish community how unclean he'd become. He was with unclean animals. And so he was defiled. He was unclean. In the Old Testament, it meant that it put you outside the worshiping community, that you were not part of the worshiping community. In Revelations, it makes it clear that's people who will not be part of God's kingdom for eternity. When it's referencing this, Jesus is saying that look at anything that is not man and woman in marriage is unlawful. In essence, he's drawing back to the Leviticus 18 passages where it lists a whole bunch of situations again where it is unlawful, it is unclean or defiled to have sex outside of marriage. And so again, we can love whoever we want. There's no law against that. But having sexual intercourse with those individuals changes that. And for Jesus, it was clear what he spelled out. And so it's disingenuous at best, deceptive at worst, to stand up and say that Jesus said nothing when in fact he spoke specifically to those issues in a way that would have been clear to anyone of that time. I want you to understand as we go into this conversation that as I said, there are those who are going to be hateful. There are those that are going to be affirming. We want to walk in contrast a different way in that if you struggle with these things, we will not treat you in either of those ways, neither hatred nor affirmation. We will not revile you, but we cannot affirm you. And the reason we won't revile you is the same reason we can't affirm you because of God's word because of both his love and his holiness, because of his grace and his goodness. It's not easy to talk about also his wrath. But when we do, it's wrapped up together in the amazing news of his grace 
And so as much as we can look here and spend time focusing on the idea that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by God in his wrath, and it's specific in, in the uh, passage in Jude 7, it says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They served as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That's horrible. And that's echoed through, through the ages. Everyone knows. And the dead see that devastating, all of that. That's all part of it, Yes. If that's all you hear today or all you have ever heard, then you have to understand that judgment is against all sexual immorality. Same sex as well as those sleeping with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, and either you're engaged or not. It also includes, though, drunkards. The passage includes slander. Those who would slander somebody else. The end result, guys, is we're a sinful people. We're people that need God's grace. Regardless of what it is that you struggle with, Sodom and Gomorrah was about sexual immorality, specifically same-sex attraction, but sexual immorality as a whole. Jesus speaks to it. And no matter how many times you revise the scripture, the truth of it is still present. We may not be able to disagree in our society without having to bend to it. But as Christians, we need to understand what it is that we hold to. Sodom began by pitching his tent outside the city. Before long, he was in the city, and it's only by God's grace that he came out of the city. And so today, I want to challenge you to come out of the city of man. Whether you are a Christian who has not been clear on these things, whether you have a family member who struggles with these things and that's put a terrible conflict upon you, or whether you're someone who has struggled yourself with your identity. Your sexual identity is not the totality of who you are. That's another lie that's been said to you. And there's a time when all these things will drop away from us, all these fleshly issues. And who you are is who you are in Christ and have always been someone valuable, someone beloved. There's a song, and I won't play a song for you today, but I want to read one of the lines. It's called Belovedness. It says, you've owned your fear and all your self-loathing. You've owned the voices inside of your head. You've owned the shame and reproach of your failure. It's time to own your belovedness. This is you. If you have struggled with these things, but you've brought this to Christ, whatever your sexual immorality, you've owned your past and how it's defined you. You've owed everything everybody else says. It's time to hear what your father has spoken. It's time to own your belovedness. You are completely loved and fully known. Beloved, because believe he died to make your heart his home. If you've struggled with these things, but you brought them to Christ and you laid them down, and then you still go back and struggle, but you come back and lay those down, you need to know that God is still with you in the midst of that struggle. But what you can't do is say, this is right and God is wrong and I will embrace this and I'll be arrogant about it. You can't do that. But no matter how much you struggle, if you bring that to God, he will continue to uphold and uplift you until such time as you find victory in that area. For those of you who've been confused about where the stance is on these issues, you need to understand there's no room any longer for that and you need to take a position and I made clear to you today what the biblical position is. And then there are those of you that have family members, and to me this is one of the toughest ones, 
The toughest by far is those who struggle themselves. But the next thing to that are those of us who have family members or people we love deeply. And they're either walking in pride and, and, and delusion or they themselves struggle. And we're caught with the pain of how to help them or we're caught with, with how can we love them without affirming them? How do we walk this way? There's a, a, a part at the ending of the movie, um, a river runs through it. And the pastor is giving his final sermon and as he's doing, he's thinking of his wayward son who died, who he loved deeply, but they never were quite aligned. He says, he says we, we, we look at one we've loved who has need and we are willing to help, but what if anything is needed? It is true that we can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give or the part we have to give is not wanted. But it's those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can love completely without complete understanding. So those we live with and should know who elude us we can love completely without complete understanding. This morning, this conversation is just about concluded. I thank you for your time and your regard. There were one or two that needed to step out, and I have no doubt they had children that needed attention or a restroom break, do not judge them for it. So this morning, it's just us. It's just you. It's God. So what do you believe? Do you believe 1946? Do you believe Ted Lou that Jesus says nothing? Do you believe that there are ninja angels out there? Do you believe Sodom and Gomorrah was just about and that judgment about people that were inhospitable? Do you believe the word of God and does it challenge you as it challenges me? that end, I would pray with you today. Father, I raise up to you right now, and I don't ask anyone to identify themselves other than to you in their heart and mind and spirit, but Lord, I, I, I say to those Christians right now who have waffled on this, who have held a wrong view, that, that they've been misaligned, that, that somehow today they would understand and they would repent, and I pray, Lord, that as we repent of those views, that were not true, not complete, that were immature at best, like Danica, or at worst, twisting things entirely and compromising, Lord, that we would come to a clarity today, repent of that and say, God, we will stand on your word, not with hatred, but not with affirmation either. We will take this difficult road of standing on your word and engage people respectfully. Lord, for those who have family members who struggle with this issue, and they love them so deeply, God, I pray that you give them the strength to hold to their convictions in a way that is graceful and thoughtful and still loving these individuals completely. 
even if they are not able to come alongside in the way that those individuals want them to. Give them wisdom and strength. Then, Lord, for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, God, I pray right now that you would lift them up to see your truth, that they would know that they are beloved even now in their sin, and that you draw them to yourself. And as they would repent this day, and once again pick up their cross perhaps to follow you, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen them and let them know that you are present even in their struggle. And then finally, Lord, for those who sit so smugly today because they don't deal with same-sex attraction, their attraction is much deeper and darker in different ways with pornography or with other things that we won't even talk about here, let alone the idea of just sleeping with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Father, I pray they'd be challenged today to look at what God says about that. And that they would also repent that there'd be a transformation in how they would view themselves before God. And so Lord, this morning in this place, bring us to a point of understanding, not just your wrath, that last of all, but let it be there. But let us have an understanding of your grace. And in that understanding, Let it break and transform our hearts. There will be those available up front here for prayer if you'd like to come forward. And while we are not affirming, this is a safe place. I would leave you today with this scripture from the 56th Psalm, which the previous song that was just sung was based upon. You have seen me tossing and turning through the night, O Lord. You've collected all my tears and preserved them in your bottle. You've recorded every one in your book. The very day I call for help, the tide of battle turns and my enemies flee. This one thing I know, God is for me. Today, if you've come to an understanding of the truth of the subject today, and you call out for help, then today is when the tide of battle turns for you. And the one thing I want to leave you with today is this. God is for you. It's not against you. So Father, I pray that you would give us grace in the midst of our struggles. I pray that you'd help us to align to your truth and to stay very strong upon that rock. I pray, Lord, strength for families that struggle in the midst of these times. I pray, Lord, for individuals and for us as a church and our society as a whole. Guide us in these things and let us hold true while continuing to hold grace. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.